Hi there, welcome to the Oxford Comment. My name is Estelle and I'm Associate Publicist in the New York office of Oxford University Press. I'm also host of today's episode discussing the Federalist Society with Amanda Hollis Brusky, Professor of Politics at Pomona College and author of our February release, Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. Today we're chatting about the influence of this group on important Supreme Court decisions, the upcoming 2016 election and why your voice is important, as well as Amanda's research and writing process. We're going to kick things off by having Amanda explain what exactly the Federalist Society is. Yeah, so the Federal Society is a conservative and libertarian legal network. It's a self-professed society of ideas. Um, it grew up around the Reagan administration as a response to what its founders perceived to be a, a liberal dormant dominated orthodoxy within the law schools and within legal institutions. So there was a sense that, you know, there was a political ideas on the right were uh, were on the rise. Ideas about free markets and limited government and states' rights. But if you went to any elite law school in the 1970s and early 1980s, those kinds of ideas were were not being represented in the curriculum. Law schools were by and large left of center and still are. And so you had a small group of of law students who reacted to this. And as a response, they organized a student group at Yale Law School and the University of Chicago. And they organized a conference uh, in the spring of 1982. And they brought all of the leading lights of the libertarian and conservative movement at the time to their campus to debate their professors. Um, And the proceedings of this conference were then uh, reprinted in the National Review magazine, which is heavily trafficked and generated just a huge response from lawyers and faculty and law students on the right who were isolated in, in seemingly hostile institutions wondering how they could set up their own chapters of the Federal Society. And so fast forward 30 years, the organization's grown from a small student group into a, um, a vast network of lawyers, academics, law students, policymakers, judges, uh, law clerks, and journalists. And they're really committed to what they see as a mission to restore conservative and libertarian principles into the law, into the legal culture, and into legal institutions. So how did you get into into this to write an entire book about it? Now, that's a great question. So uh, as a graduate student, I was really interested in political theory and ideas. Um, and then I started taking courses on um, constitutional theory and the idea of a constitution. And in that course, I had been reading some of Stanley Fish's work on literary communities and interpretive communities. And Fish's argument is, um, so if you're looking at uh, an interpretation of Pride and Prejudice, right, Jane Austen's work. And the question is, the words haven't changed, and yet the scholarly community has evolved in what it understands those words to mean over time. So how does that happen? And what he identified was it happens by getting a community of scholars together who believe that the words mean B and not A, getting them into positions of power and influence where they're able to then influence the next generation of readers and scholars coming up. And so over time, if you get enough people who believe something and they have access to positions of power and institutional influence, then the meaning of that text starts to change. And I started to think about this in relationship to the Constitution, because like Pride and Prejudice, the words of the Constitution haven't changed, and yet the meaning of the Constitution has changed and evolved so much over time. So I got very interested in the question of, how does that happen? Are there interpretive communities like Fish talks about um, that influence the text and meaning of the Constitution? And that led me through through a, a variety of different ways to to look at the Federal Society as one of these communities that that influence constitutional meaning over time. 
The idea of college students starting a group like this, I think, is so amazing. I mean, it seems it's like such a huge undertaking. Was there ever, you know, doubt that they could build it into this thing? Did they think that it would become this like machine? That's a great question. And of course, I interviewed many of them in 2008, more than 25 years after the founding. So it's hard to know if the narrative they constructed post hoc is the narrative they would have told me in 1982. But this was a small group of elite law students who had connections to uh, very sort of um, elite networks within the conservative movement. Many had worked on the Reagan presidential campaign. Um, several of them went into work in the Reagan Justice Department in the early 1980s. And so I think they just wanted to create a home in law student for law students who were right of center um, when they started the the Federal Society, and they didn't realize that they had tapped into such a high demand market. And I don't. I think the idea was to create a conservative counter elite, and you do start it at the law school. Um, but people with access to funding and resources and power saw the Federalist Society and saw that opportunity, and they helped build it into the organization that it is today. I would imagine it would be hard to do something like this today. Part of it is the Federal Society has been so successful in the space that it's created for right-leaning law students um, that it has become the de facto monopoly um, for credentialing young conservative and libertarian legal talent. So my sense is on the right there isn't any more space mm -hmm. for an organization, um, but you know, as I talk about in the book, the American Constitution Society was founded in 2001 by liberals and progressives to counter what they saw as the rise of the Federal Society and the rise of its influence. So you do have effort on the left to try to mobilize in the same way that the Federal Society founders mobilized on the right. But one of the things that's, I think, a lingering question, and we'll have to see how this plays out over time, is the extent to which the rise of these two organizations are looking a little bit like the rise of two political parties in the law. And similar to what happens when you have a two-party system in politics, um, it excludes third parties, it sort of excludes moderates. And one of the things that I'd be interested to see is if the American Constitution Society becomes the Federal Society of the left, to what extent will that suppress um, moderate voices or individuals who may have landed somewhere in the middle but for professional incentives end up uh, working within one of these two organizations instead. So you did a lot of research to put together this book. I mean, how long did it take you to work on it? Did you hit any roadblocks? Do you have any interesting fun stories from talking to everyone who you did? Yeah, so it took, I mean, this was the dissertation project. So if you, if you go back, you know, when I was in graduate school at Berkeley, the idea for the project really started in 2006, 2007. Um, I didn't start doing field work and research for it until about in 2008. I didn't have any roadblocks in the writing process itself, but when you're designing a research project, there are so many different decisions that can paralyze you intellectually. Uh, decisions about measurement, about research design, about what cases to include, what cases not to include, um, whether to follow reviewer one or reviewer three who are saying conflicting things about how to proceed with the research design mm -hmm. in the manuscript. Um, so the roadblocks really were uh, any time that I stumbled were I had to make a difficult decision. And as a scholar, you just have to make a decision, otherwise you will be paralyzed. And then you prepare to defend it to the best of your ability. 
And I mentioned in 2008 I started doing field work, and which involved interviewing a number of the founding and key members of the Federal Society Network and also members of the American Constitution Society. I happened to be at the Heritage Foundation on Super Tuesday in 2008. And I was interviewing Ed Meese, who was Reagan's former attorney general. And the whole place was buzzing um, <laughs> with, with uh, excitement and anticipation. And after I finished this interview, I went across the street and to the Union Pub and Grill, and that's in Capitol Hill. And I walked into the bar, and people had red or blue martinis. <laughs> they were projecting the returns of Super Tuesday uh, primary results on a big screen like it was the Super Bowl. And it was the first time I realized, not growing up in a very politically active family, um, just how intense Washington is and can be. You wear your political affiliation on your sleeve, and you drink the color <laughs> of martini uh, that, that shows your true um, political stripes. So that was a really fun evening. I think a lot of times with politics, people feel really overwhelmed, and I think it's easy to sort of kind of push it aside a little bit, and it's just kind of like buzzing in the air. You know, with the rise of a group like the Federalist Society and also the American Constitution Society, I mean, how can, seeing how, you know, they're not elected officials and they have so much pull, do you think it alienates the average person? Like, what, can I really make a difference here? Yeah, and so I'll say two things to that. The first is, a basic commentary that the Federal Society, and as I talk about it in the book, is really just a more organized and formalized version of the kinds of informal elite liberal net or elite liberal networks for a long time that always existed within the legal profession to influence judges, judicial policymaking, and judicial appointments. The Federal Society is not something new, it's but it is an improvement and a more formalized version of a dynamic that's always existed. And you're right, the average citizen uh, doesn't understand that constitutional law, Supreme Court policy making is about the people you put on the bench. Of course it is. It's about their decisions. It's about uh, their opinions. But Supreme Court justices can't make cases appear before them. They can't wave a magic wand and say, voila, today I would like to hear a Voting Rights Act case. It doesn't work that way. They need lawyers to find and finance and bring that litigation before them. So lawyers have always played a really important role um, in, in judicial policymaking and Supreme Court policymaking. The second thing I'll say is voters do have a say. So we have a mantra in political science that the Supreme Court follows the election returns. All that means is that the people vote for a president who broadly embodies their own values. That president then appoints judges and justices that broadly embody his or her own values. So in that way, if you get enough Democratic presidents or enough Republican presidents that embody a certain set of values, the judiciary over time will change to reflect those values. So in some way, voters do have a say. And many election cycles are not critical or determinative of what the Supreme Court will look like. This next election cycle and the one following it are going to be incredibly consequential for what the Supreme Court looks like in the future, where it goes ideologically. So you have four justices who are in their late 70s or early 80s, two Democratic appointees, two Republican appointees. Uh, so if you have another two-term Democratic president, it's almost guaranteed that he or she will be able to replace the two aging liberals on the court mm -hmm. and probably pick up one more seat. And then you'll see the balance of power on the court shift to the left. And it'll shift to the left for the foreseeable future. On the other hand, if you have a new, another two-term Republican 
presidential administration, then that Republican president will probably be able to not only solidify the current existing conservative majority on the court, but really add one or two seats to it and ensure conservative ascendancy on the court for another 25 or 30 years. So I don't know that voters should be sitting at home necessarily worried about this, but I hope that they'll recognize that they are really empowered through their votes in the next two election cycles to determine where the Supreme Court goes. If you vote Democrat, the Supreme Court will follow Sonia Sotomayor for the next 25 years. If you vote Republican, the Supreme Court will follow John Roberts and Samuel Alito for the next 25 years. Now, I often remind people that the Supreme Court consistently gets the highest public approval ratings, and yet it's the institution that people know the least about. And there's actually a relationship there. If you look at Congress's approval ratings after they opened it up, after they put cameras in the chambers, and after people knew more about it, their approval ratings have consistently gone down. So it seems to be that the more we know about an institution, the less we like it and the less we trust it, the less we know about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is totally shrouded in mystery. I mean, this is an organization that doesn't allow cameras in the courtroom, um, that deliberates in secret. We never have full access to decision-making processes that lead to these opinions. We have notes of justices that when they die, they leave those notes to the people so historians and scholars can review them and try to piece together the tea leaves and try to see how justices got to where they ended up. Um, but we don't have access to their deliberations and we don't have access um, to those processes that help us understand how they get where they get. And so, you know, my work on the Federal Society shows a little bit, I mean, in one sense, it's showing how this is actually more of an open institution than most people think it is because there are avenues to lobby it. Um, through these briefs, through participation as friend of the court, you have members of the Federal Society Network who are able to lobby the Federal Society successfully. Um, that also means that there are, pro there are avenues for those on the left if and when um, there is a liberal majority on the court again, that those same avenues will be open to members, elite members um, of the legal community to lobby. And so to some extent, it's, it, it's shining a light on a dynamic that's always existed, which might, some people might be uncomfortable with, but I think it also should be empowering because if you care deeply about something, there are inroads, right? Mm -hmm. You can join an interest group. You can uh, voice your opinion. You can, if you can get access to, you know, elite policymakers and interest groups who then file briefs that influence Supreme Court decision-making. One thing that's interested me about you writing this book was how balanced you were able to stay. I mean, it must have been really difficult to not always not be writing something where you're inserting your own opinions. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I believe the term was frustratingly neutral. I don't know if you used it or, or uh, David McBride used it or one of, the, one of my editors used the term frustratingly neutral. Um, as a social scientist, that's a great compliment. And I do approach this from a social scientific perspective. I'm interested in how ideas influence policy, how those ideas move through networks and end up getting picked up by judicial decision makers or policymakers who have access to power, who then implement those ideas and they shape policy. That's a fascinating dynamic, right? So for me, I, I looked at the ideas not to critically interrogate them themselves, not to judge the ideas, not to pass any kind of normative gloss on the ideas. I looked at the ideas as evidence of influence, right? That I sort of tagged them like you would, you know, tracking the migration of bats. You're gonna tag these bats, you're gonna see where they move, mm -hmm. where they end up, 
And so I, I tagged these ideas coming from the Federal Society Network that were developed over decades. And then I saw where they went, how they moved through particular network actors and how they got picked up by judicial decision makers and translate into policy. Um, and that's a fascinating dynamic to me. Uh, some have, have criticized the fact that I do stay very neutral. I, I don't critically interrogate uh, the beliefs of the Federal Society Network. Um, one of my, someone who wrote a review on Amazon said, you know, she doesn't actually have, she looks at the beliefs, but she doesn't evaluate them. If she did, it'd be a thousand page book, right? It would have taken a lot more pages mm -hmm. to then um, go into, you know, critically interrogate the ideas themselves. And so I think that's, as a social scientist, I work very hard to gain the credibility of the people who spoke with me. I tried to represent their, their stories as, as earnestly um, and as faithfully as possible. And I, you know, tried to solicit feedback and uh, comments from people on both the left and the right. And to me, you know, this is a work of social science. It's not a normative argument. Um, and so being frustratingly neutral, it's exactly where I want to be. <laughs> what kind of stuff are you working on next? Speaking of frustratingly neutral, <laughs> um, the next book project uh, looks at the rise of evangelical Christian law schools and legal training programs. So one of the frameworks that I mobilize in Ideas with Consequences to understand the federal society is this framework of a support structure. And this gets at some of the dynamics I hinted at earlier. Supreme Court justices can't make cases appear before them by, as if by magic. They rely on the broader legal community. They rely on lawyers. There needs to be financing. There need to be institutions. There needs to be an intellectual community that can develop legal strategies. Um, all that has to come together in a particular way before a case actually will find itself at the Supreme Court. And um, uh, Chuck Epp, who's at uh, University of Kansas, calls this the support structure for litigation. You can have the right people on the bench, but unless they can get the cases they want to make the changes they need to make, then you don't get constitutional revolutions. You don't see the law move dramatically. So developing a support structure is really important. One of the things that happened early on with the Federal Society is it took on a very libertarian bent. The leaders were inspired by Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. Um, not to the exclusion overtly of evangelicals and moral Christians, but the way the organization developed, um, it sort of pushed those, those parts of the conservative movement to the margins. And in the 1990s, evangelical leaders like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and Tom Modigan decided that mainstream law schools and mainstream legal institutions were too hostile for evangelicals, that evangelicals had a distinct way of understanding the law that mainstream law schools couldn't represent or wouldn't represent. And so they founded their own law schools. Mm -hmm. And so here we're talking about Liberty, Regent, and Ave Maria specifically. So there's two different ways to build a support structure, I argue. One is you infiltrate existing institutions like the Federal Society did. The other is to build your own institutions. And so part of the intrigue of looking at the rise of evangelical Christian law schools is trying to understand what happens when you go that route. Are you going to produce lawyers who are then going to go on and sort of work for public interest law firms, become judges, get access to policy making, get access to power? Um, or is, is there going to be, um, because of the way the, the legal profession understands credentialing and um, gatekeeping, are there going to be further obstacles to getting those people into positions of power and influence?
So how are, or how are you balancing, you know, writing this new book and teaching and how do you do it all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think balance is really important and I don't think you find balance. I think you create it. Um, I ascribe to daily writing. Right? I write every day, even if it's just for 30 minutes. I don't wait until I have large blocks of time um, on, the, on break or over the summer or on weekends. Yeah, I treat it like a job because writing is part of my job. Um, I've always been pretty disciplined. I come from a long line of Plymouth Colony Puritans in <laughs> Massachusetts, right? You put your work in and then you get your reward. Mm -hmm. And for me, logging daily writing allows me to get what I need to get done during the week and then I actually have time to to spend spend with my family, spend with my daughters, to get outside, get in the mountains, um, travel. And so for me, uh, it's about f it's about balance, but you create balance through discipline, th through getting your work in every day. For the your first book, you know, that was something you've been working on for so long. I mean, do you have sort of your own deadline for this next one or do you feel a little bit differently about it? Like it's not as it's not your baby. <laughs> um, it's it's hard because I did have two babies while I was writing this first <laughs> book. So I do feel like I have, you know, these three babies. The second book, you come at it just the dissertation, there's so much tied up in it. You're a graduate student, you're trying to get a job. Um, the second book, you know, I'm co-authoring this project with Josh Wilson, who's at University of Denver, has been much more systematic in the way we've thought about the project. It's more organized. Uh, it, it, it evolved less organically. We had a question we were interested in. We thought carefully about our research design. And right now, the challenge is um, I'm not a graduate student who can take one or two years off and, and go do research. So I'll be doing research in fits and spurts. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm doing some interviews in April. Um, I'll have some time over the summer to do some interviews and gather data. But the research component of it, I think, is going to take a lot longer, and it's going to happen over a longer period of time. But the research design uh, process has been, I've, I've approached it with a lot more clarity than I think I did when I was a graduate student. So that's been nice. And also, I think working with, a per with someone else, that really changes things for you. Yeah, and when you're a graduate student, you work with your advisors, but it's a different dynamic. Um, and working with Josh and the conversations we've had, I think, have helped really sharpen and refine what it is we're interested in, what kinds of theoretical questions that informs, and, and how we're going to go about doing the research. So um, I'm excited to get going on it. Um, I want to go back and just do one last question about the Federalist Society and the process of writing this book. You know, once it's published and it's done, it's out there for the world to see. Was there anything surprising to you about the group after the book has been published? So, like we talked about, I am, I was really committed to being social scientific and neutral in the way I talked about the organization. But you put it out into the world and uh, those on the left and the right, sometimes they want to reduce it to something that is soundbite worthy or something that is sensational or something that gets clicks. Um, in a story. And so when I did this article with ProPublica, I did a Q&A, and uh, I'd approved the, the, the Q&A content, but the title and the intro were added later. And the title and the intro talked about the Federal Society being a secretive society that will take healthcare away from millions of people. And I got a lot of Twitter backlash 
on that. Um, it was started a good back and forth because I was able to um, respond and say, I don't think there was anything secretive or nefarious about the organization. Everyone was very open uh, during the interview process. I was invited to talks and conferences. So it gave me a chance to respond to that. But at the same time, it is fascinating to see how quickly those things take on a life of their own when, when they get into the media. Um, so as someone who's now just starting to get into this world, um, I'm learning a lot about how I can best represent my work um, with integrity and when to let go also, because these things are going to take a life of their own and I can only respond to the best of my ability. And the only response I can really say to everyone is, you know, read the book, <laughs> right? Read the book. It's, it is not this, it is not that. It's a lot more nuanced. And if you read the book, you'll get that. And I'm confident that'll come through. Thanks so much to Amanda for taking the time to speak with me. Once again, her book is called Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Oxford Comment. You can check out previous episodes on OUP Blog, SoundCloud, and iTunes.